Blog Talk Radio. to raise the question, what is it that we're going to do independent of white people? It is very, very hard for us to envision a world without white people. But we cannot create our own agenda until and unless we can define an agenda that can envision a world in which they don't exist. Now we have to wake up and come back to the reality of them. But certainly when we talk about a future, we have to talk about a future from our point of view and our historical understanding of reality. Hetepu, Edamanesh, Edamana, Nangadef, Majwo, Abaragani, Salbona, Anisogoma, Peace, War, Pan-African Greetings Family. This is your host, Kamal Mukasey Tahuti, and you have entered Africa's reascension. Please bear with me. I got a little bit of nasal congestion, not a whole full-blown cold, but small cough and stuff going on with my throat. But the show will continue. Before we get started, we shall open like we usually do with an apai or our libation, which deliberately calls upon the energies of our African gods, our African spirit forces, and the forces of those yet born to guide and bless this endeavor. I go, I go, I go. Odumakumad, Inyame, Inyamewa, Treaty upon, Olorun, Amenra, Bejeensa, Asasaya, Insa, Abasun, Insa, Abasun Po, Insa, Nana Sergibi, Insa, Nana Esiketuwa, Insa, Nana Dada Kofi Insa, Nana Kumi Insa, Nana Tigre, Nana Tigre, Nana Tigre Insa, Kweku Free Insa, Akonadi Abena Insa, Asubontin Insa, Ocherewa Insa, Tamensa Insa, Shango, Shango, Shango Insa, Oya Insa, Oshu Insa, Heru Kahuti Insa, Chihuti Insa, Nananom and Samanfo Insa, and Samanfo Abasu of Fow Insa, Abasum, Abasu of Fow Insa, Yeshremo Yansa, Yeshremo Ahode, Yeshremo and Chera, Yeshremo Sikapa, Yeshremo and Kwasu, Yeshremo and Kwasu Abasu of Fow, Yea and Kwasu. I ask that Odomakuman, Inyame, Inyamewa, the Treaty of Pong, Olorun, Amenra, to use me and this form to impart clarity and cultural consistency to all within the sound of my voice. May I speak directly to your soon soon, your spirit, and reawaken the long, dormant, and asleep African inside. Medasipa. Medasi bio, mo piafo, mo ne casa, medasi nana no, 
Yo, Madassi, no, no, no. All right. The Apaya libation is an ancient practice that is still done to this day in all rural traditional areas throughout the continent. Past, present, and future become one as those of tomorrow. Look upon what we are doing now and drawing strength from and doing the rituals of yesterday. Again, this is Kamal McCasey Tuhudi. You have entered Africa's reascension. Um, I first have to give a shout-out. A few birthdays have just passed. Um, Excuse me, I don't have the year directly in front of me, but I know January 1st was um, the day that our Grand Master Scholar, um, Dr. John Hendry Clark, was born. Um, And as you know, a few years ago he became... Um, an ancestor, but we definitely got to remember him and for the 60-plus years of scholarship that he did that that got a lot of us on this particular path that we're on now um, based on his dedication, his hard work, his love for African people and for re-Africanizing at all costs. Um, We give praise and honor to MZ, Dr. John Hedrick Clark. Also, again, I forget, I don't have the exact year in front of me, but on December 21st, excuse me, December 31st, uh, was the birthday of our other or or another Grandmaster Scholar who is still kicking to this day, um, Dr. Yosef Benyakana. I've seen different um, posts where Renoka Rashidi and other folks who... Lapacha, well, other folks are doing um, fundraisers again for him uh, to help get money to help take care of him and things like that. Um, Dr. Ben, as we affectionately call him, was um, no holds barred. (laughs) Uh, Very entertaining, very scholarly. He was one of those first um, pioneers in, in. getting folks to be like, hey, instead of dealing with the carbon copy that we call Christianity, let's um, go back home. And let's not only just go back home and thought, here, I'm going to set up tours and take you over to Kemet, Tamari, what we now call Egypt, and let you see what our ancestors wrote and let you see um, the idea of what got stolen, the meanings and the concepts and all that did not get stolen within Christianity, just the images <laughs> and, and, and just some of the ideas. Uh, but if you want to know what those ideas were, what the concepts were, what the meanings were, you have to study and get back into traditional African spiritual systems. And it was um, definitely based on the work of Dr. Yosef Benyakana that helped get generations after generations after generations um, on that path. And so... Um, much, much more continued blessings and hopefully many more years of life for um, Dr. Yosef Benyakana. Him, again, his birthday, December 31st, and um, ancestor par excellence, Dr. John Hendrick Clark, his birthday was January 1st. Um, so, yeah, so today we will get into. 
I hope everybody can hear me. The switchboard is tripping again. Okay. Resistance to enslavement phase two on the enslavement ships. Today we will share key passages from the work If We Must Die by Caucasoid Eric Taylor. There were over 700 shipboard insurrections. Most of them unfortunately failed. That's why we are a dispersed family now, but some did succeed. This information is deliberately left out of the history books and can only be recovered and dealt with properly when we do the digging ourselves. Knowing we resisted Caucasoids is one thing. Knowing we have defeated Caucasoids is another. And this show highlights some of those African victories. Um, but before we get into that, we will um, <clears throat> play a promo and a few clips and then jump right into If We Must Die, Shipboard Insurrections, shipboard insurrections in the Era of the Atlantic Slave Trade. Okay, the switchboard did freeze on me. One moment. Oh, boy, and Blog Talk want us to pay? Try this again. Welcome to the desert of the real. Peace, family. This is your brother, Hollop, a.k.a. Mr. Holipsis, a.k.a. the Buzz Killer. Tune in to Holipsism's Haven every Sunday at 9 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, where we discuss the social, economic, and political issues of the day with a common-sense approach, an African-centered perspective, and a universal sensibility. Call in number 347-843-4874. That's 347-843-4874. To check out related YouTube videos, blogs, and show archives, visit www.holipsism.com. That's www.holipsism.com. I'm making it hard to get your Negro on. Hotep, Black Power. There's something wrong with the world. You don't know what it is, but it's there like a splinter in your mind, driving you mad. Your right great-great-grandfather killed my great-great-grandfather, and your white-great-grandfather sold my great-grandfather, and your white-grandfather raped my grandmother, and your father stole, cheated, lied, and robbed my father. What kind of a fool would I have to be to say, come, my friend, to the white daughter and son? African. Come and step in brother's temple, see what's happening. You'll take the bass low, coming from a zero. Tell me what a sissy know. Funk a 
blessing is a new flow Stalking, walking in my big black boots Living off the earth, eating herbs and fruits The children await me by the mountain and the river And gather around the fire for the scroll that I deliver The speak of a house is from the sand to the sky And devils ever doubt and want to measure how high Your life reveals you, your mind can't catch it Dimensions of a god go far beyond brackets Coming to my oven, devils come and you burn I can always feel vulture with the strength and black word You're pissing me off because you swear you're higher level Back to your cave, get yourself together Chili and Megilla, chocolate and vanilla How can polar bears swing on vines with the gorillas, please? Check your reason, cause it's something amiss My home is a void, you drown in a bit I teach your funk code and don't preach a rap rhyme Harambe to the sun as the mortals ask time The folk and lesson comes, the sundial speaks The building of the strong are the lessons of the meek My science is deep, my blackness is deep How deep? Deep Deeper than Atlantis, deeper than the seafloor, travel by the mantis. Your copycats will never know. With you, the funk will never flow, but that's another blow. Make your move, be apprentice, I never step. I'm a travel move, your master hasn't figured yet. Bring your weapons to my sword and shield. What's the higher level if your shit ain't real? My mystic magic, what you gonna do? Think before you step before the rebel, silly mortal you. I tried to warn you, but your mind won't catch. You're just cookies in my oven. If I wanna burn a batch, you just burn. This is protected by the red, the black, and the green with the key, sissy. Like this, like that, like that, like this. How dark is the world, how strong is a fist. Originals come from the sand and the sword to the concrete. Fighting wars in the street. The day of outrage, history, another page. We like the word of this, but now there is a brother Jay. The prince of warriors, lead masses. Stomp and live a lip, punks playing asses. The damn sissies always thought for the glory. Sissy bomb is coming, but that's another story. So many people forgot where they came. Disrespect religion, but the living is lame. Black, white, how you living? Blowing the now. Teach them any mortals, the chimes of a sundown. To the east, teaching God to be. What it was, what it is, and against shall be. What's my mind say if my state ain't black? But Moses, Malcolm, and here we are back. And the voice to a many going verb to verb. Sit back and take heed, brother, you must learn. Swimming in the books, and the books ain't given. The scales of a black man weighs in the living. I dwell among the mortals, the time is in the verse. Mortal soul, it curse. Shadows in the sunlight, balancing the birth. Tick tock, tick, we go sun to moon. Verbalize the speaks, it's a quarter to doom. Self destruction, it's not a key function. Number bound the leaders, cause the people keep fronting. When will they realize the body needs head? It's more than what's said when a leader lies dead. Coming to the darkness, past is light. Death meaning life as a pharaoh takes flight. Too much to grieve for a silly pale beast. You can't define what's direct from the east. God protect me. He selects me. God makes the path so the world respects me. Zero to nine. Grandest creator. I pray for those on both sides of equator. Professor X. When will they learn? One slice into doors. Death, no return, no return. This is an invitation to the crossroads. If you dare. City. With a key. Yeah. 
right, we're back. We played a clip from, uh, well, first we played the promo for uh, Holipsism Haven. They just, the show that just came on before mine, they did the Herb of the Year. Basically the biggest bootlicking, I love white folks, he he had a long thing. I I I can't go. <laughs> I don't have it up to reread the whole thing on how greatly he cast it. But basically, the biggest bootlicking. I love white folks above everybody else. Um, nigga of the year, basically, and it was a close race, a close race between Eddie Long and Barack Obama, Eddie Long and Barack Obama, and it kept going back and forth all night, all night, and I kept campaigning. I was on the campaigning trail. I was pushing. For Barack Obama, of course, I ain't going for that coon for the elections. But for this election, for coonship, I had to campaign for him, and I tried, and I tried, and I did my part. But in the end, Bishop Eddie Long was herb of the year. Ah. Anyway, so definitely that was a, uh, the, the the first <laughs> promo was um, a promo for Mr. Holipsism's Haven. Um, her lip show, which comes on right before this one. So um, please spread the love, spread the wealth. This, this brother put me on, and, and, and he's about about it too. So if you get time, um, check out his show that comes on before mine or go to his spot and, 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 and um, download the archives. And then after that, we played a quick clip from um, Sister Soldier, and then we played um, – the original X-Clan, not the BS resurrected X-Clan, which is definitely went from an African-centered or at least Kemet-centered juggernaut to now they're um, kissing Arabic butt, return to Mecca and all that sort of stuff. But anyway, oh, how the mighty have fallen. So that was uh, Grand Verbalizer, what time is it, from the old school, the original, the hardcore X-Clan. So, if we must die, shipboard insurrections in the era of the Atlantic slave trade by Eric Robert Taylor. Um, in my opening, I said 700. I, I, I'll correct that. It was right under 500, at least for this particular book, or at least from the records that he was able to pull up, he says he, he went through 493 um, shipboard revolts. So that's not saying that there couldn't be more. Again, like I said last week, the key word is recorded. <laughs> and, and you know, some captains wouldn't want to record if they had an insurrection um, on their ship. And some of them, if all of the crew was killed, um, wouldn't be, might not be too many records of it because no, no one was there to write about it. <laughs> we... Um, took over the ship, took it where it needed to be, went on our merry way, and boom, that was it. And so then, you know, if there's no evidence, they find the ship somewhere, and then they just see dead carcassoids on there. They might not necessarily knew what has happened, or they might not want to report it due to embarrassment if we're got back to the mighty queen of, uh, of that time. And so um, while he touches on 493, is that the right number, yeah, That's again. That's a rec- yeah. Four hundred ninety-three were identified in the research of this book. Uh, I'm sure there were more that just didn't get recorded. So, 
What I'm going to do is read some stuff that's going to piss y'all off. But I think we need to get pissed back off again because um, we take enslavement lightly. We listen to the stories of Uncle Tom's cabin. We listen to um, Henry Louis Gates who try to blame all this shit on us. I think we still forget the absolute horror of what the enslavement process was. We want to try to say that we enslaved ourselves, so we shouldn't really talk about it. We want to talk about, well, we had slavery on the continent, and that's where Europeans got it from. No, that's sort of bullshit. And it has to specifically be called bullshit because if you study, again, what we did, and and white boy Eric Taylor makes a a note of that, we'll get to that. If you study our servitude system in comparison to Caucasoid chattel slavery, there is no comparison. There is no comparison um, to the the horrific inanity and, and disregard of human life that Caucasoids did and do to us. Um, not to say that the African servitude system was all hunky-dory and all, all flowers and unicorns and rainbows and stuff like that. I'm not saying that. But what I am saying is that the majority of what happened with our enslavement is 800 degrees different from what happened in, in the European shadow system. You did have some knuckleheads and some you know, folks that hated themselves and wanted to show white folks, you know, that they could be just like them, um, you know, after they came over and showed them the way <laughs> as far as how to really in, in, enslave and do crazy stuff or whatever, whatnot. But the majority of our servitude is in no way comparable to what causes race did to us. But I just want to read a few passages about the um, – Travel on the ships, uh, and and when I was rereading this <laughs> to 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 get ready for this, I was like, wow, it, it was pissing me off. Um, so so I'm gonna take a deep breath <laughs> and. Hopefully I don't bore you all too much with this, with reading, but I really want to get the exactitude of it in the record. Um, Once at the coast, enslaved Africans continued to suffer as they were now imprisoned for an indefinite amount of time, awaiting the arrival of slave ships to carry them off. Depending on European wars, the presence of pirates in the Atlantic, demand for slaves in the Americas, outbreaks of disease on the African coast, and any number of other factors, slave ships could either be plentiful or incredibly scarce at any given time. When ships were scarce, um, Africans could spend a considerable amount of time either in prison in the dark slave pens of a West African trade castle waiting for a ship from one of the chartered European companies to arrive, or confined in a makeshift pen constructed on the beach waiting to be sold to a captain of a private trader. Regardless of which of these fates the Africans faced, the wait was intolerable. 
describing the barracoons of the major West African, West Central African slave trading ports of Luanda and Benguela, Benguela, for example, Joseph Miller writes, large numbers of slaves accumulated within these pens, living for days and weeks surrounded by walls too high for a person to scale, squatting helplessly, naked, on the dirt, and entirely exposed to the skies, except for a few adjoining cells where they could be locked at night. They lived in a wormy morass and slept in their own excrement without even a bonfire for warmth. At Benguela, the slave pen sometimes held 150 to 200 enslaved Africans, along with pigs and goats, leaving only about two square meters for each captive. This experience would have been both disgusting and disheartening, and Africans were sometimes forced to suffer these conditions for months on end. As another observer noted, the slaves confined in prisons and dungeons resembling dens where they lie naked in the sand, crowded together and loaded with irons. In consequence, of this cruel mode of confinement, they are frequently covered with uh with C U T A N E O U S. My brain is blinking on me on how to pronounce that. Basically with horrible puff filled eruptions on their body, like boils and stuff. Ten or twelve of them fed together out of a trough, precisely like so many hogs. End quote. This dehumanizing experience certainly took its toll on the Africans and must have been extraordinarily confusing and distressing. <sighs> Not knowing what lay what lays ahead hearing strange languages all around them as traders barded with Europeans, catching glimpses of white faces and giant slave ships unlike anything they've ever seen before, close enough perhaps to hear the cannon salutes of ships as they came into port or to smell the cauldrons of food cooking on nearby vessels. Many must have been paralyzed with fear and dread. To make matters worse, disease periodically ravaged the dirty and crowded slave pens, and Africans became progressively weakened by their extended confinement. Death rates were extremely high, probably at least 10 to 15 percent in the mid to late 18th century trade in Angola, for example. When slaves died, traders would unceremoniously bury them or simply throw their bodies into the beach to rot or to be picked over by animals. Such practices continued in certain locations until the very end of the 18th century. It's stuff like that when you read about the the the, the numbers and and like I said last week, right now the total numbers of of the enslaved supposed to, that got brought over is supposed to be between 13 and 30 million. Again, going back to Dr. Clark, if you don't start the damn count at 100 million, then shut up. We're not listening to you. 
because all these folks that died, and and we're going to read about some folks that jump overboard, all those numbers aren't counted. The only numbers that are recorded in these books that talk about how many got brought over here were in ships, in ship logs, in diaries, in, in historical accounts, what was recorded. Please never let anyone get you caught up in this recorded debate and only 13 to 30 million of us got enslaved over the 400-year period. At least 100 million of us got displaced, whether killed or detached from our family or brought over and, and put over on foreign lands. They don't, the Caucasoids never want to look at the total number of Africans that were displaced. They only just want to talk about the specific that was recorded. Fuck you and your recorded stuff. When a ship, this, um, we're on page 22 now. When a ship at last arrived to pick up slaves, the Africans were herded out of their cells and assembled on the beach to embark on the next terrifying leg of their journey. At this time, either on shore or sometimes after having been brought to the ship, they were forced to undergo a humiliating physical inspection and often a painful branding so that they could later be identified by those who claimed to own them. During the physical examination, the slaves encounter perhaps their first sign that this new form of slavery into which they were being sold was unlike anything in their experience. The customary rights and privileges that governed domestic slavery in African societies were replaced by strict lines of ownership, profit, and race. Again, Let's not let folks confuse us. Oh, well, Africans had slavery too. Be like, shut up, fool. Go study what African servitude was and then attempt to compare that to what European chattel, chattel slavery was and, and, and then come back and let's talk. But just saying that out, out, out the side of your mouth to try to shut down a debate when we want to bring up slavery or reparations or whatever, whatnot, amongst us learned people, in our history, amongst us who read, amongst us who, who dig deeper than the surface, that, that off-the-cuff argument holds no weight. Study the history, do some research, then come back. Otherwise, shut up. During, I'm going to read it again. During the physical examination, the enslaved Africans encountered perhaps their first sign that this new form of slavery into which they were being sold was unlike anything in their experience. The customary rights and privileges that governed domestic slavery in African societies, I would say servitude, uh, were replaced by strict lines of ownership, profit, and race. Like the most lowly of livestock, slaves were poked and prodded, had their limbs and teeth checked, and were inspected for any signs of disease. Uh, William Bosman describes this process Quote They are thoroughly examined Even to the smallest member <laughs> And that naked too Both men and women Without the least distinction or modesty The lame or faulty Are set Are set by as inf- in, Invalids Invalids These 
are such these are such as are about five and thirty years old or maimed in the arms, legs, hands, feet, lost tooth, gray haired, have film over their eyes, etc., etc. Another observation. If they are afflicted with any infirmity or are deformed or have bad eyes or teeth, if they are lame, weak in joints, distorted in the back, um, of slender make, narrow in the chest, in short, if they have been or are afflicted in any manner so as to render them incapable of much labor, um, if any of these foregoing defects are discovered in them, they are rejected, end quote. The inspections were embarrassing and infuriating, but with armed guards on hand, the Africans had no choice. An 18th century Dutch slaving handbook recommended that traders check the hearing and speaking ability of slaves by making them scream. And in order to avoid purchasing older slaves, captains were advised to check their teeth, examine their hair, and test the firmness of a woman's breast. According to a well-known Danish slave trader, the Portuguese were especially picky in their examinations of slaves, spending as much as four hours inspecting each slave, smelling their throats, making them laugh and sing, and finally licking the chin of the men to find out whether they had beards and therefore gauge their age. Deep breath, deep breath, okay. Now, for those um, Greeks, black Greeks in the house, let me give you all a lesson on the historical origins of that branding shit that y'all do. Reading from page 23. Once declared acceptable, slaves endured the further indignity of having a person or company's brand forever seared into their flesh, a practice that was initiated in at least some locations from the very start. In certain areas, each party with an interest in a given slave, whether their initial owner in Africa, the merchants who subsequently bartered them to the ship captains, or the local government, had its own separate brand to be applied to the flesh of the Africans. Thus, some slaves were branded multiple times before leaving Africa, and often yet again upon arrival in the Americas. The branding process was exceptionally painful. As Robert Harms describes the ordeal, after the irons were heated red hot on a bed of burning charcoal, several stout sailors would hold the African in place while an assistant would rub the spot intended for branding with tallow and then place a piece of greased or oiled paper over it. The branding iron would then be pressed into the piece of paper, marking the bodies of the Africans from the, for the rest of their lives. These marks were variously made on the shoulder, thigh, breast, stomach, or even on the buttocks in the case of small children, and took four to five days to heal. Weak in pain, 
possibly ill, certainly homesick, surely frightened, but also perhaps filled with rage and thoughts of vengeance. The Africans were now officially ready for their voyage across the Atlantic. Take a take a. Uh, I gotta take a quick quick break after that shit.
right, that was from uh, Mamadi Diabata. Diabate, I'm sorry, uh, magnificent Cora player. Um, I want to thank everyone who's listening. Thanks for everyone who's um, on the computer, in the chat, in the call queue, sending uplifting texts, everything. Thank you. This this is um, especially going through that part, kind of tough. Especially when you when you look at where we are today, and how not only do we not mostly know about this information, but we're willing slaves now. That that's what really upsets me, <laughs> is that we're willingly bowing down and, and and walking lock, stop, and bear to our own destruction. But when you look at what we did to fight to retain our autonomy and then compare that to how we fight for integration and assimilation, for one that is continuing to be a fighter, it gets a bit distressing sometimes. It gets to the point where, you know, if more of us knew about this history, um, the hope is that more of us would be fighting to get back our autonomy, to get back our sovereignty, to get back um, our Africanness, and to get back to our damn selves. But the system just goes so much in overtime, 25, 28 hours a day, 300, 400 days out of the year to, 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 to make sure that, that that we don't want anything to do with African African history and stuff like that. So 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 that air of resistance doesn't boil over in our bellies and in our bosoms again so we can um get free. <sighs> so to go back, um, page twelve, he wants to he I think he's he's proper in this. He wants to he makes a bit of distinction in, in the book. Um, additionally, it should be explained just what it what is meant by the term shipboard slave revolt in this book. Reference, reference to insurrection, rebellion, uprising, or revolt indicates that a group of at least two slaves rose together and took active and aggressive steps to change the balance of power on board a particular ship with the intent of reclaiming their freedom. So insurrection, rebellion, uprising, revolt. You're changing the prevailing conditions. Um, Now, instances of resistance, um, in this case that he's speaking of, such as suicide, and escape, which were not aimed at overthrowing the system, but singularly concerned with personally rejecting it, he doesn't include those in the book. So um, in his studies, he came across 100 enslaved Africans on board the Prince of Orange ship suddenly decided to jump overboard in an attempted, in an apparent mass suicide attempt in 1737. So he would say they were resisting and not revolting, because if he's defining revolt is you're 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 uh, reclaiming your freedom, 
by taking over the ship. It's a shipboard revolt versus you're resisting the dehumanizing system of enslavement. So you will either take your own life or you'll jump overboard and hope that you're not too far from shore and you can swim back, whatever, whatnot. So he's making that distinction. But, again, there are a 100 of us on board the Prince of Orange ship, and we all decided to jump overboard in 1737. He also um, got some information um, about Africans who were aboard the English vessel Guinea um, had to be re-secured after prying open a window and attempting to escape. Um, and so, yeah, so I'm just sharing that to make a distinction if once if and when you do pick up the book, he, he makes a little distinction there, and so he focuses on shipboard revolts where we try to retake over the ship and then uh, take it back to freedom. Now, last week I made a distinction between uh, the story of the Amistad got movie got a movie deal. And 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 we can talk all day and all night about what happened on the Amistad, but we can't talk anything about what happened on aboard the uh, Marlboro ship. And I'm sure some of y'all who listened to that thought I was crazy when I said that. So let me share, you know, since I said it and some of y'all might have thought I was crazy, let me share what the white boy said. Um, and then, you know, if y'all thought I was crazy, then, you know, if it's coming from a white person, then some of y'all might believe it more. So let me um, share. So in in the above paragraphs, he makes mention of the fact that, you know, the Amistad was a um, noteworthy case, and there's um, a plethora of information about it, and so that made it a, you know, obvious choice for attention. However, um, this is page 8 and page 9. There is another side to consider. For one, the concentration on any single revolt tends to diminish one's understanding of how widespread shipboard insurrection actually was. Similarly, and perhaps more importantly, the fact that the Amistad case so prominently involved whites makes it particularly misleading. This is a white guy talking. Concentration on the Amistad to the exclusion of other cases diminishes the roles of Africans while overemphasizing the roles of whites, thus distorting the historical record. The case of the Amistad is particularly significant for the events which occurred off the ship. This is precisely why it is such a misleading representative of shipboard resistance. While the details of this particular revolt, once it entered the court systems, are obviously more significant, the case of the Amistad stands essentially alone in this regard. In the overall picture of shipboard resistance, it is what occurred on the ships that is important. In short, the tendency to emphasize the case of the Amistad above all other revolts may have a distorting influence for those attempting to see it as part of a much larger tradition. So, yeah, I really like the fact that he says that it overemphasized the roles that whites played in helping us get free and de-emphasized and just brushes under the rug 
the role that the Africans took in actually getting the ship in their control in the first place. But I have to get this into the record because this was a magnificent story. And I'm going to try to get it in. We're going to keep going. So anyone who's in the chat room, um, you want to continue because we're going to continue. The call-in number is 760-454-1111, We're going to try to go ahead and conclude this part of it tonight so then we can spend the next few weeks moving into phase three um, when we were brought over here and how we revolted and what we did and things like that. So, yeah, but because I, I got a few different books that I want to pull from from that for phase three, but I definitely got to get this information about the Marlboro. Um, which is probably the most successful one uh, that we've never heard of. And he has a chapter. This is from Chapter 6 called Successful Revolt, uh, page 119. He, this 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 white boy does a very good job. I give him some props in, um, in how he broke it down, how he sets it up. And we'll even read a few things um, into the record, he has in his appendix, he has a chronology of the shipboard slave revolts, 1509 to 1865. So basically, I don't know, I didn't count if he has all 493 that he studied, but he's got a nice amount of pages, and it might be 493 because at least it looks like about 20 pages or so. But he has the, the ship, when it sailed, where it went from, and if it was successful or quote-unquote unsuccessful, and so we'll read a few of the successes in here. But we got to get, let me, I'm going to get this into the record, and we may take a pause for a minute and then play the closing and then come back depending on how far we get. But we're going to keep going. So if you're in the chat room, you want to continue, the call-in number is 760-454-1111. In October of 1752, more than 400 Africans from Boney and the Gold Coast found themselves on board the Bristol Slaver Marlboro as it was about to embark on a treachery journey across the Atlantic. Among them, 28 Gold Coast Africans managed to earn the trust of the Marlboro's master, Captain Codd, C-O-D-D, to such an extent that they were permitted on deck and out of change to assist in the sailing of the ship. This decision would prove to be a fatal mistake. Three days into the journey, an opportune moment for rebellion arose when the captain decided to bathe the slaves and ordered all of the more than 30 sailors on board except himself in two centuries to go below to prepare the equipment needed for the process. Recognizing that they far outnumbered the crew members left on deck, the Africans seized their opportunity and attack. Attacked. Their first move was to disarm the sentries standing post at the ship's barricado and threw them overboard to drown. They next turned their attention to Captain Cod, now the lone white man on deck, who managed to flee to the foretop despite having been hit in the head with the butt of a blunderbuss, whatever the hell that is. The Africans then had to deal with the remainder of the sailors who had now come on deck 
and were determined to defend the ship and re-enslave the Africans. Locked in this battle for self-preservation, the crew, the Caucasoids, proved the weaker adversaries, for the revolt had happened so suddenly they were taken by surprise and were unequipped to deal with the armed, enslaved Africans. That's my first. All they had, all they had to wage their defense were an empty musket and a few boards. When the Africans quickly killed two men, most of the remaining sailors realized that it was futile to engage them in such a one-sided fight and fled to various points of the ship's rigging in a desperate attempt to distance themselves from the enslaved Africans' wrath. In the confusion of the moment, the unfortunate sailors who had fled to the less secure parts of the ship were quickly tracked down and killed. Some of the Africans fired at the crewmen who had taken refuge in the rigging, while others targeted those they could reach. One of these less fortunate men was the ship's doctor, who was shot in the side and thrown overboard after being bludgeoned to death with a mallet taken from the ship's kitchen. Others were also shot or stabbed, and soon all but those who remained in the rigging were dead. One of these men attempted to throw himself upon the mercy of the Africans by climbing down and surrendering after being shot in the thigh. But this sailor's poor judgment quickly became apparent when he was swiftly executed. Now in control of the ship, the Africans realized that the number of crew members still alive were so small as not to present a threat, and they convinced the survivors that they would not be killed if they surrendered. However, when 12 crew members came down, the Africans determined that there were still too many alive for their comfort and threw four of the crackers overboard. Oh, he said men, I'm saying crackers. The others were soon put to work in turning the Marlboro around and sailing it back to land. Two days later, the ship arrived back in the vicinity of the Boney Coast. Unbeknownst to the Africans, the captain despite being badly injured, Captain Kaja was still alive and hiding in the foretop. The crew managed to smuggle him down to the four-stay sail, sail netting and hide him under a sail where they hoped he would be safe until they could be rescued or until the Africans abandoned the ship for sure. However, their hopes were soon dashed when the Africans discovered the captain's coattail exposed underneath the sail. <laughs> When they realized he was still alive, the rebels quickly killed the captain and threw him overboard. Eager to end the revolt and secure their freedom back on land, the Africans forced the crew to anchor the ship and lower its longbow and yow so they could get to the coast as soon as possible. However, the boats already heavily loaded with goods and people both sank with hundreds of bony slaves anxious to get back on land, attempting to force their way on board. Angered by this, the Gold Coast slaves remained on board the Marlboro, uh, refused to let these Africans back on the ship, leaving nearly a hundred of them to drown. This incident sparked two days of violent fighting between Gold Coast and bony slaves that was halted only momentarily by a truce to eat and dress. No longer having the longbow and y'all at their disposal, the Africans ordered the um, sailors, the white folks, to sail the ship closer to the shore. When the sailors finally found a location to anchor, 
the Africans realized that they were they were in view of nearby ships and fearful of being recaptured, threatened the lives of the crew. Although the discomfort the slaves felt at being so close to other ships was well-founded, the sailors somehow managed to persuade the Africans to let them anchor there despite the potential threat. The Africans ordered one of the ship's boats to be lowered so they could send a small group of slaves ashore. Reluctantly convinced by the, slave, by the ship's cook that a, crew, that a crew member could best navigate the small boat, the Africans allowed one sailor to join the group setting off for the shore. As darkness began to fall, the small group in the punt rode feverishly to the, road, to the beach and soon achieved their freedom they had, that they had fought so hard for. Other small groups would follow in the hours to come, and in the end, some 270 Africans would land on the bony shore as free men and women. Why is there a movie about the Amistad and not a movie about the Marlboro? Well, we know why, because we don't control Jewwood. I mean, Hollywood. Um, but if they've been able to dig up all these details, and I'm sure he left out some stuff, but if he's been able to get all these details about the Marlboro, I'm sure we could do some digging and do some more research, get some more details, then ad-lib and put a movie together talking about the Marlboro. So we're going to play our closing. The ship, the the switchboard is going to die out, um, and then we're going to continue. We're going to read a few more of these successful um, shipboard revolts where we've got our freedom, and then conclude. Um, Abibi Fahodie, Total African Liberation. system of European control works is that you have to accept a concept of reality which makes them superior. If you deny that, their thing will not work and they will lose their control. And they will lose their control. So yeah, so in the successful revolts chapter, he walks through, you know, the different thinking and decisions and the th different mindsets that had to, um, the different obstacles that, that were in place and the different things you had to think of um, when you were about to try to take over a ship. So he walks you through the capture of a vessel and some of the things that that had to entail, and then being on board a captured ship and what you had to think about um, as far as, you know, you got you may have limited food supplies and, and, and what happened. Um, do you kill all of, the, all of the white folks or do you leave a few uh, who on the ship... Who, were there any enslaved Africans who had maritime skills who could sail the ship? Because there were some, and, and he 
makes mention of that. There, there were some Africans who, who knew how to sail. And so in those instances, you know, they let it be known and then they could kill all the crackers and then uh, go ahead and take over the ship, take the ship back to land and do what it had to do. But when it was ascertained that nobody knew how to sail a ship, then they had to determine, okay, which ones are we going to keep, which other ones are we going to kill, how are we going to get rid of them, stuff like that. And so all of that had to be thought of as well. He talks about, um, you know, how a ship got cut off on the African coast. And then he goes through and breaks down sort of what freedom entails, how how you, in, in looking at the research, how would you determine um, freedom? Would you, I wanna, I'm looking for the passage. Well, here he's talking about success, a successful revolt. Um, so maybe that's, I'm, I think that's more of what I meant. How would you define a successful revolt? Now, I mean, you know, for me, you go all the way. <laughs> a successful revolt is when you get your freedom, just like the Marlboro. They were able to get off the, um, they were able to drop the anchor, get out the sail, drop the sailboats, get off the sailboat, uh, the canoes, the smaller ships, and then walk back on shore and then go back home. Uh, for other folks, you know, he, he sort of, he, he gives a bit different, a, a gradient, if you will. And, and, and I can I can understand. I can understand uh, his rationale. In spite, we're reading from 122. In spite of all the measures taken to ensure a safe voyage across the Atlantic, Numerous insurrections were indeed successful. However, the quantitative analysis of such revolts depends upon how one defines success. While the ultimate goal of any slave revolt was freedom from slavery, the most pressing and immediate goal of a shipboard rebellion was the capture of the vessel. Before true freedom could ever be hoped for, the Africans on board had to stop the progress of the ship. They had to turn the shipboard world upside down, reversing the balance of power on board and forcibly taking command of the slaver, even of the slave ship, even if only for a brief period. If the vessel had begun its passage, they had to find some way of capturing the helm and turning it around. Once this was accomplished, the revolt can fairly be classified as successful. Indeed, dozens upon dozens of insurrections reached this early stage of success. Although many of the insurrectionists involved in these incidents would find to their dismay that the hardest part still lay ahead of them. It was not uncommon for enslaved Africans to find some way of slipping out of their chains and striking swiftly and without warning. If all went well, the crew was unable to react quickly or decisively enough, the enslaved Africans could take control of the ship. And then he goes on to talk about, you know, some of the white folks when they knew that they were about to be 
overdone, overtaken, they would try to surrender or they would throw themselves overboard. <laughs> ah, that, that's always good. I kill myself. Um, this just popped in my head. I, I should have mentioned it at the beginning um, in mentioning Dr. Clark and Dr. Ben. We also want to um, remember and recognize and pay homage to the um, Haitian successful revolt, the successful revolt of Haiti. I think that was January 4th, 1805, so that that um, next anniversary is coming up. Um, and then we'll be talking about it uh, in the coming weeks. Um, January 4th, no, January 8th, 1811, seven years after the successful Haitian um, revolution, you had the largest uprising of stolen Africans in America. Um, we, we had a revolt down in Louisiana, down in New Orleans. Um, it, it was eventually unsuccessful, um, but a lot of a lot of Cousins did lose their lives. A lot of plantations were burned down to the ground. A lot of buildings were burned down to the ground. Um, so as far as changing up the the um, enslavement system to some degree down in New Orleans, um, 500 fighting men and women, um, January 8, 1811, were at least successful momentarily, <laughs> if you want to put spin on it. We were successful momentarily. In, in the largest uprising in the large in the largest enslaved African uprising in America, and um, there's a book that just came out about it called American Uprising by a white boy Daniel Rasmussen. Um, I'm almost finished with it now, and I will definitely be reading nice large passages, especially from the revolt section in there. Um, not next week, but probably two weeks from now in the upcoming weeks. But so yes, yeah, so so January we definitely have to um, keep in our collective memory the success of the Haitian Rebellion that was this month, as well as the um, partially successful uh, Louisiana slash New Orleans uh, enslaved African uprising in January of eighteen eleven. So, so let's keep those in the history, in our mental history, and get them in the history books. And uh, again, let's keep this resistance vibe going. We gotta let folks know that that we resisted. We did not happily and easily go into bondage. We fought in all ways, in all phases. Last two weeks, we talked about how we fought on the continent not to get on the ships. Now we're talking about when we did get in the ships, how we fought on the ships, and the next few weeks we'll be talking about when we made it to the shores, how we fought once we landed in America or in Jamaica or in Suriname or in wherever we landed. We had folks that fought then too. Um, this, this enslavement, this Caucasoid shadow enslavement system did not go easy for them, as they would want us to think. 
So yeah, here's the here's the part <clears throat> on board a captured slave ship, page one twenty five. Once a slaver was captured, the Africans were immediately faced with a number of pressing questions, the most important of which was how to get the ship back to shore as quickly as possible. Depending upon the extent of the maritime experience in the communities from which they were captured, the Africans would either choose to kill all of the crackers, well, he says sailors, and attempt to turn the ship around by themselves, or, as occurred on numerous occasions, keep a few Caucasoids alive, he says crew members, for the purpose of navigating back to the African coast. In one instance, enslaved Africans who were, who captured the French vessel Nécessaire killed all of the crew except one man who was tied to a post in order to guide them back to the place they were taken from. This was a very smart tactic on the part of the Africans, for if all the crew were killed and the slave Africans had no idea how to, how to sail the ship, then the successful rebels might well have drifted on the ocean until they died of starvation or were captured by another ship. With feelings of power and rage welling up inside of them, it might have been difficult in some cases for Africans to spare the lives of the, of the Caucasoids, he says sailors and acknowledged that they needed these men who had been their oppressors to help them succeed. But rational and calm leaders knew not to act impulsively and recognized that the job was not yet finished. In some cases, the Africans may have felt competent enough to handle the ship on their own. Indeed, quote-unquote, sub-Saharan Africans had developed extensive trading networks that utilized local rivers and coastal routes, from small and swift canoes to much larger vessels capable of carrying a hundred or more people. Many coastal communities thrived on the expert boatmen that conducted these trade that conducted trade. So, but then he mentions that. We had little to no experience of navigating a ship the size of the slave ship. Um, excuse me, but um, having having some knowledge of the seas, having some knowledge of sailing, and and of shipboard. Um, know-how did give some of us, you know, the confidence to attempt to try it. Uh, excuse me. Uh, to try to go ahead and kill all of them and do the ship themselves. Um, yeah, and there, there, there's, but there's also to counter that, there's also a few cases where we killed them all and then found out that no one knew how to sail and then they either got recaptured, like you said, either got recaptured by another ship or folks died of starvation. So we're going to go ahead and conclude. Like I said, he has an appendix. Uh, and 
Yeah, he gives the date, the vessel, the place of origin, the ship captain or captains, the location and region of the rebellion, casualties, outcome, and the source where he got it from. And so there's about... Yeah, about 30-some-odd pages, so maybe he did get this whole 493 in here. But um, one that I had, I think I had mentioned it when I was looking at it, but I didn't mention it because I couldn't pronounce it. Misery Cordaria, M-I-S-E-R-I. C-O-R-D-I-A, that's the name of a ship that started, you know, it, it began, it was it was owned by Portugal in 1532. Um, everybody but three crew members were killed, and from his research, he would list that one as a successful one. He has um, freedom as a question mark because the, the, the rest of the information isn't known in the sense that... Did, did they go back immediately to where um, the ship came from, or did they end up going off, you know, into Central or South America? But they were able to retake the ship um, that was a successful revolt. <clears throat> but the recording of it doesn't necessarily say if they got away, if they made it all the way back home or if they made it to somewhere else. Um, in 1571, there was a ship that left Spain. They didn't get the actual uh, name of it. It was going to the West Indies, and the quote from that is, the slave slits the throats of the crew. And, again, he says that one was successful, but, again, he didn't know. No information came up to see if um, if they made it back home or not. Now, this one, this, <laughs> this one was successful, but we didn't get freedom. This is one in a minute. And um, 1651 from England, um, taking folks from the Gambia, Senegambia area, all enslaved Africans and crewmen were killed. Um, he sees this as a successful one because we took over the ship, but we wasn't able to kill everyone. But then, recognizing the ship was lost, the captain committed suicide by blowing up the ship with all aboard. Eh, see, so that one was successful in that she took over the ship, but she didn't get freedom. Y'all got killed, so you know that that that's a hard one to call successful success. Um, but we did take over that ship at least. Um, 1685 to Charlton, went from England um, and to Benin. Eight crewmen were killed, and they were able to successfully take over the ship. Um, 1686, the, the ship was called Anne out of England, coming from Senegambia. Some crewmen were killed. That one was successful. Uh, 
Then in 1866, they 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 sent the cauldron or the children out of England once again. This time to the Gold Coast. All of the crew members were killed, and so that one was successful. And again, I, I'll go as far as saying we we got our freedom. These these they have successful and their freedom with a question mark. We don't know um, based on again the records, um, but we took over the ship. And then what we did with it after that, the record, the the the, the quote unquote record, that the written record doesn't say. Um, Sixteen eighty nine, the ship out of England. We took it over. That was successful. Um, in sixteen ninety nine, the Core Cothering, that was the name of the ship out of England, again going to Senegambia. Um, that was successful. Um, we took over that ship. In 1701, on the ship Anna from the Netherlands. Um, going through Sierra Leone No crewmen were killed Some slaves jumped overboard and escaped It was successful In the sense that we took over the ship And freedom for some of us And like I said, we had already mentioned the Marlborough, one of the most successful ones. In seventeen thirteen, the victorious Anne out of England going through the Gold Coast. Yeah. All but seven Caucasoids were killed. Um the ship was blown up in the insurrection. But they don't say if Obviously, some of us must have gotten away, but freedom is still with a question mark there. But it was successful to the point where they was like, we're going to blow up the ship. Um, in 1715, there was a ship from South Carolina going to Senegambia. Um, we took that one over. Don't know if that was, if we got our freedom or not. Seventeen sixteen, Anne and Priscilla from London was going through again to the Gambia, the Gambia region. At least one crewman was killed, um, and one one reporter suggests virtually all of the sailors were killed. Um, so we were able to gain control of that ship, um, but we don't know if they got their freedom. Seventeen sixteen, the Sophia from Ireland. Going to Senegambia, all but two crewmen were killed. Uh, it was successful in taking over the ship. Um, the records don't indicate if we got our freedom or not. 1717, um, the Anne out of England going to um, Gambia River, Senegambia. Um, two to eight slaves were killed. Six jumped overboard. May have swum the shore. Um, 
they ended up taking the ship back, but there was freedom for some of us um, who jumped overboard and made it back to shore. So that must have been, you know, one that got that happened right when the ship um, right when the ship left the port. Seventeen twenty-two, a ship out of unnamed ship out of England. Again, this in the Gambia. One crewman killed. We were able to take over that ship. You see, we need to be doing our own research into this and see if there were names of people um, so we can add them into our libations and so we can be calling upon their energies. Because, again, they fought, you know, they had to walk down the long coasts through through the environment and then be in the ships and then be in the dungeons and then be brought on the ships and then to be on the ships and be crafty enough to get out of all those damn leg irons and um, chains and all the other shit they put us in, and then to fight the European crew, and then to take over the ship. And you know what I'm saying? Their their names are just being forgotten. And and, and that's why, you know, at least if I can read, if they have listed the name of the ship, well, I guess you wouldn't want to, Call out a slave ship in the in the in in, in doing libation, but in the spirit of that ship with the successful Africans that revolted and and fought for their freedom and possibly attained it, you know there has to be some way to remember and even revive their legacy because again this is the long history of resistance that we are not being taught that exists in our history. And, 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 and these people, as best as we can, have to be remembered in some way, shape, or form so we can call upon their energies because we're fighting. We're still fighting the beast today, and we need their help. 1729, ship Anne from England. Uh, it was successful. Not sure if they got their freedom. In 1730, there was a ship called the William out of Boston, Massachusetts, going through the Gold Coast. Um, The press reported that the captain and all the crew were murdered by the Negroes that had on board. That one was successful. Don't know if they got their freedom. Um... Seventeen thirty, there's a ship called Little George from Newport, Rhode Island. Um, at least one slave and one cargozoid was killed. They got they were successful, they took over the ship, they did get their freedom, but then they say some accounts suggest that they were re enslaved um when they got to the shore. 
And see, it's stuff like that we would have to try to dig up and see, was it true? Did they actually get away? Uh, were they re-enslaved? Was that information, was that propaganda that was put out that they was re-enslaved to, you know, help put in our heads, oh, dang, even when we tried to do it, we got caught again, so what's the point of trying to do it, you know? Um, in 1730, a ship, unnamed ship, left from Scotland down through the Gold Coast. Most of the crewmen were killed. So, again, we took over that ship, but don't know if we got the freedom, our freedom. Ah, 1731, ship called the Ruby out of London, England. Um, most of the crewmen were killed. That was a success, and they did regain their freedom. 1731, the Ruby. 1732, the Parfait, P-A-R-F-A-I-T-E, some French name because it came from France. Um, They was going through the Bight of Benin. One crewman was killed, but they did take over the ship. Don't know if they got their freedom. 1732, an unnamed ship from Bristol, Rhode Island. All crew members were killed, so that was successful. They don't know if they got their freedom. 1733, an unnamed ship from England, again going through Senegambia. The report was a great part of the crewmen were killed. So, again, that was success. We took the ship over. Don't know if they made it back home or if they took over the ship and went to somewhere else. Um, Unnamed ship, 1733, from Portugal. Uh, Most of the crewmen were killed. So that was successful, but they held the ship for five days before being recaptured after 24-hour engagement with an English vessel. So that was only partially successful. (laughs) They got their freedom. They they, they took over the ship. Um, Then another ship came and swiped them up. 1734, a new ship from France. Some of the crew members were killed. We did take over the ship. Don't know if they got their freedom. Another one, they blew up the ship. I mean, that's some shit right there. The black folks beat you down. Okay, first of all, you're already doing something wrong and messed up. Here you are, (laughs) killing, raping men, women, children, destroying whole families, and you stick them on a ship purely for profit, purely for profit. Um, They overtake you. And instead of your ass, you know, maybe trying to get on a ship and go to safety or, you know, lower one of the little ships and try to get off, go to safety, or jump overboard, try to swim your way to safety, you're going to be like, if I can't have the ship, nobody can. You're just going to blow the whole ship up. (laughs) Wow. 1738, the Galatea out of France, um, 
going through the Gold Coast. Um, several slaves with four crew members, four Caucasoids were killed. Um, that was successful. We took over the ship. They say they don't know if they got their freedom. Yeah, here, you know, I'm just going through his pages of the revolt, of the revolts um, that he left. Um, and again, listening, trying to list some of the successful ones. Um, 1742, the St. Helena out of France, going through the Bight of Benin, some enslaved Africans and seven white boys was killed. That was successful, and some of them did get their freedom. 1742, ship Mary out of England, going through Senegambia. All but two crewmen were killed. That one was a success, and most of the folks did get their freedom. Trying to get these successful ones as much as we can into the record. 1747 from Rhode Island going through the Gold Coast. All but two crew members were killed. They did take over the ship. Don't know if they got their freedom. Seventeen fifty, the Willing Mind out of England through Sierra Leone. Whether it had been an insurrection or an attack by the free Africans, uh it was successful and most of them did get their freedom. In seventeen fifty, the AM out of England, going through the Bight of Biafra. It leaves three crewmen killed. They were successful, and they taken the ship, and they, the, 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 the enslaved Africans did get their freedom. 1750 from France, just going through the African coast. All the two crewmen killed. Um, they did take over the ship. Don't know if they got their freedom. 1751, the surf, C-E-R-F, from France through the African coast. They did take over the ship. Don't know if they got their freedom. Yeah, I'm about to. Since my throat's about to give out on me, there there's <laughs> there was quite a few more pages left, but we can end on October fourteenth, seventeen fifty two, the Marlboro. 
out of England, Captain Robert Codd, African Coast. A hundred or so, or probably less, enslaved Africans and at least 27 carpazoids killed. Um, one report suggests upwards to 100 slaves were drowned in a dispute between the slaves arising from the revolt, and we shared that. But overall, it was successful. They took over the ship, and they did those surviving Africans um, on on the Marlboro ship did set their feet back on the Boney Coast as free African men and women. And so we'll go ahead and I'll read this one last, the last um, chapter, the last paragraph from the conclusion of the book. And now, of course, he does the flowery language of him to write the book and get it published. You know, he has to put it within the universal or human context. But um, this was Africans fighting for our um, freedom and our way of life. 176 to 177. The African slave trade was obviously a violent, savage, and terrifying chapter of human history. And its toll upon the region of West Africa and its people, including those who were distributed throughout the New World, can never be fully measured. For this reason, perhaps the most important lesson to take from the study of slave resistance is that the tragedy of slavery did not occur without a long, bloody, and bitter fight that continued until slavery was finally abolished in the late 19th century. The ships of the Atlantic trade were perhaps the first great stage for this dramatic struggle. In the countless instances of resistance and outright insurrection that took place provided a powerful prelude to the tradition of revolt that followed among the plantation societies of the Americas. That courage, no, excuse me, the courage, determination, and defiance of the enslaved men and women stand as testaments to the human spirit. I would say it stands as testaments to the African spirit, the African human spirit. The Africans fought back and fought hard refusing to go quietly into bondage. Now, one quick correction. He makes a statement that the ships of the trade were perhaps the first great stage of the struggle for our freedom. But as we did with the last two shows, um, it wasn't the first stage. It was the second stage because we fought back in Africa. And, and I gave, you know, the different ways that we did that, the protective strategies, the defensive strategies and the offensive strategies that we took. So the shipboard revolts were the second stage. They were not the first stage. Um, and it's from us fighting on the continent and then fighting 
on the ships and then fighting when we got brought over here. That's the complete legacy. But, you know, again, I, I, I give give the um, Cousinsoid props what he did put together, and I'm not calling this the definitive book because there are other books out there that talk about the um, shipboard insurrections and things like that. Uh, but it's, it's a good starting point. First, to get it in your library, If We Must Die uh, by Eric Taylor. First, getting it in your library, uh, then actually reading it, and then, you know, then we can do some other digging um, as far as seeing if there's other information out there on the successful ones. Um, did the folks get their freedom? Um, is there any other information on the Marlboro? That seems to be a well documented. Again, he used. The, we talk about the Amistad was was well documented, and because of all the docu- because of all the documentation, that's why a movie was made out of it. But I read a whole bunch of stuff tonight on on what actually happened with the Marlboro, and I'm sure he left some stuff out. You know, get it in, hit it for space and stuff. So how much more information is out there about um, October 14, 1752, the successful uprising, insurrection on board the Marlboro slaver in which Africans took over the ship and regained their freedom completely? Not through no help. You know, okay, I think they had a few... The white folks to help them sail the ship back to the Boney Coast, but nothing compared to the Amistad and taking it to the Supreme Court within the European legal system and arguing within their definition of jurisprudence and all this sort of stuff and get their freedom that way. Nah, we fought, killed, um, resisted. Um, turned the ship back around, got it back to the coast, and got back home on on our own determination for freedom and our determination to live our African existence in our William's fashion. And that's the story that I want to tell my grandchildren and great-grandchildren and great-great-grandchildren about. And that's the story that should be in films and in books and on front covers of magazines. Um, and things like that, not the Amistad. Or, I shouldn't say it that way, but the Amistad should be more of a footnote in our resistance history and not the crowning jewel of of our resistance history. Again, even like the Carcassoid had to give up that I read, it oh, the Amistad case overemphasizes the help that Carcassoid's played in our freedom and effectively de-emphasizes all the work that the Africans that we had to do to get control of the ship to um, have it gotten to the point where it got to in the first place. Even in the movie, they don't really focus on that too much. The, The majority of the movie just focuses on the drama with the court case and the drama with the white guy understanding what we were going through and all that sort of stuff. And you really you got a little bit of what it took to take over the ship, but not enough. But we get nothing about the Marlboro. We get nothing about the successful queen the successful Anne. We get nothing about the successful ships. And so 
it's going to be up to us to do that work and dig it up and make it real for us and make it real for us. So next week, Resistance to Enslavement, Phase 3, Part 1, on foreign soil. And we'll talk about, you know, over the course of the next few weeks in this phase, again, we'll have one show fully dedicated to um, the, the, the partially successful revolt in New Orleans, uh, Louisiana, uh, January 1811. Uh, we'll be talking about some of the other successful uh, plantation revolts and rebellions that we went through. We'll again be bringing up, talking about some of the maroon communities that, that we can dig up. Resistance, resistance, resistance. Forever let your motto be resistance. They saw rebellion on every black face. I want to get back to that. I want to get back to that. They saw rebellion on every black face. All right. Let me make some tea and and, and get my voice back. Um, crazy weather out here in D.C. But anyway, thanks for everyone who's been downloading and checking it out and listening live and listening online. Uh, download, tell your friends. Make sure to click all the links, all the books on the pages. That that, that helps brother out. Again, let's keep in our memory. Um, December 31st, Dr. Yosef Benyakina's birthday. I think he's about, what, 93 now, something like that? January 1st, um, Samanful ancestor, John Henry Clark, was his birthday. Also, um, January 1805, 1804, excuse me, my um, the successful Haitian revolt, rebellion That's a part of our collective stolen African history So it's not just for Haiti Not just for the Caribbean That's all All African people worldwide Should take part in that celebration Should take part in that remembrance Should take part in Calling upon the um, good part of that energy So we can revolt And get back what was taken from us. And January 1811 was the partially successful uh, enslaved African revolt, the largest enslaved African revolt in America, 500 people, men and women, uh, in Louisiana and New Orleans, New Orleans, Louisiana. Uh, And we'll, we'll go into detail and talk about that probably in two weeks. Just keep those in our memory, um, keep those in our tongue, and put those into the mind of the young. All right. Thanks again for everyone who's listening, who listened, and who will be listening. Uh, 
Next week, again, Resistance to Enslavement, Phase 3, Part 1, on Foreign Soil. Until then, Abibi Fahodie, total, total African liberation.